My name's、uh, Paul Forcan, and I'm 29 now. Paul is English, and when he was 10, his workaholic parents said, "Next week we're going to India. You got to pack one bag, go and tell your teachers." So it got to the end of the week, and I had my shirt all ripped and signed by everyone all over it. And Miss came by and said, "What happened to your shirt?" I said, "Miss, I'm leaving in a few hours." I told you. She was like, "What?" So she like quickly scrambled back, went to the office and rung my mother and said, "What's going on? Paul going to India?" And she was like, "Yeah, did he not tell you?" And she was like, "Yeah, but you can't just pull them out of the school and just do this. You got to give us notice and all of this stuff." So her parents didn't even tell the head teacher in that. This was a decision that affected every aspect of Paul's life right up to today, and will put them on a collision course with one of the most fateful days in human history. This is a story about the trip that changed everything. Hi, I'm Jonathan Gruber, and this is the journey. The Journey is an original podcast by KLM Royal Dutch Airlines, where we meet extraordinary people whose lives are transformed by travel. We would always go away at Christmas for one holiday because they would literally work all year. But the Christmas Paul turned ten was different. Paul grew up in a large family in Croydon in South London. He was one of six kids, and instead of going on their usual Christmas holiday. Paul's parents decided to sell the house, leave everything behind, and head out into the world with the kids in tow. Our parents were just like, "What the heck are we doing all this for? All we're doing is working, getting in at eleven o'clock at night. They'd be up at nine in the morning, out doing all the prep work. So they were like, 'We don't see our kids. We've got six kids.' I thought, 'Wow, this is going to be good fun. The weather's going to be good. We see our parents loads.'" We're not going to be at school every day, and I was like, we'll be able to play cricket on the beach, football on the beach. So I was like, yeah, let's hurry up and get out of here. So in your head, this was—it's going to be endless vacation. Yeah, pretty much. Paul's family was definitely not average. The Forkan family decision to upstakes and go to India was shocking to everyone, even to Paul. But also, it kind of made sense. So if you looked over the forecans, you would think, "Oh my God, that house is crazy." Our doors were always left open. We had no, we never locked our house. Everyone would come over. We would be playing cricket in the garden,、uh, football in the garden. Everyone would just come there. The six of us. So that was crazy in itself. And then our parents, most parents would work at nine till five. Our parents would go work at nine in the morning. Sometimes they'll get back at eleven o'clock at night. And this isn't just one night a week. This is three times a week, so it's kind of very different to our mates, where their parents would literally be home at six. They'd have dinner on the table. You'd be left to your own devices. Yeah. Was that good? I think it was good. It helped us grow up quicker. If I used to look at some mates at school and stuff, they were not as independent. I was always like trying to push to do stuff myself and grow up quicker than others. I was kind of quite lucky in that sense. Paul's parents worked their long hours in the field of social enterprise. They were doing it 22 years ago when people didn't really understand social enterprise. They organized fashion shows as fundraisers for schools, hospitals, charities. The ticket sales would go to the school, the university, or the hospital, whoever was organizing the event, and then they would make money from the clothes. So it's kind of a win-win 
Their business was successful, and they were deeply involved in the community, helping those who needed it. And that included unorthodox ways of helping their own children. Me and my brother were both really badly dyslexic, and they would basically help us, where they would make us feel like we could climb any mountain, nothing can stop us, even though they knew that I was struggling at school and would have a classroom assistant sat next to me and I'd be coming home frustrated. But they just did stuff that kind of brushed it under the carpet and they would take me into work with them for a few days. You learn so much more outside of the classroom than just the four walls every day. Yeah, I used to love it. It'd be so cool, like, sometimes I'd just be working in the warehouse and learning all the different operations and stuff. Sometimes I'd go on a buying trip and it'd be really cool, like, you go out for the day, see my mum do some deals and stuff, and I'd be like, I want to do that when I'm older. The Forkhand children were being educated in things you can't learn from school books. Independence, self-reliance, common sense. So their parents' decision to take the kids out of school and travel the world was an extension of that. They got their shots, they bought a travel guide, and they just went. School or no school. Well, they couldn't do anything because we were on a plane out pretty quick. So we just literally, that was it. Off we went with our one bag. The Forkhand kids were being educated in the school of life. We were in Jordan and the Middle East, just travelling around, and then before we knew it, we were in Mumbai. It was only meant to be a six-month maximum trip. But six months turned into seven, then eight. The deadline kept getting extended. My dad would have, like, a Lonely Planet book, and he would just read places out. What about here? What about there? And then we'd just basically... He'd go haggle with a jeep or go train tickets or whatever it is, and then off we would go. It was... The real eye-opener, you had children like running after our car because they'd never seen like white people before. And they were like so excited. We were just young and took it in the moment. It was so vastly different to being in Croydon. The Forkhand family settled in Goa on the west coast of India for a while. We were then there for like six months and then we did a few trips from there and explored the state as well because it's quite big. So we stayed in tree houses and like loads of different stuff like that camps by paddy fields so we saw like loads of like wildlife that was amazing when you're seeing a mongoose and a cobra kill each other that was pretty cool and then after about a year on the road paul's parents thought it might be a good idea to put the kids back into a school my hindi wasn't very good i was then put into a class with kids like half my age so i'm sat in the kindergarten type school bench with my knees no room for them yeah just Imagine me playing in a school with people half your size. <laughs> After six months at school in India, our parents said that they were going to homeschool us. So they went out and they bought literally loads of books. But despite the best efforts of the parents, it didn't quite work out the way they'd hoped. We sat down one afternoon um, and that was it. We never saw them books again. So their idea of homeschooling us didn't really happen. And it just went back to playing Football, beach, cricket. They would teach us stuff. They would take us to sites, history sites. So we'd go to a fort or a temple or a mosque and they would explain to us about it. And they were like, hey, let's do some more good as well. They took us to orphanages. We would always volunteer like in an orphanage every Thursday, Tuesday. We'd go to the slums as well. And we'd make sure that the children were 
making sure that if they had any cuts or any stuff, like we were cleaning them up, making sure that they've got books, pencils. It was back to the school of life. But eventually, after four years of being in India, Paul's parents hatched a new business idea and started making plans to head back to the UK with their children. Their six-month trip, three and a half years overdue, was coming to an end. How did you imagine your future at that point? I imagine I would be working for my parents with my brother and it'd be a family business and we'd still be sort of traveling as a family sticking together still staying together keeping the band together as it were yeah exactly anything just to be in with the family you know if i could just work with my family i'm happy you know but before heading back the forecans decided to make one detour for the christmas holidays just like old times and our dad basically had the Lonely Planet book and he was, ah, oh, what do you think about Sri Lanka? And so he went off and booked some flights and came back and said, we're going to Sri Lanka tomorrow. So that was it. Off we went. We flew into Sri Lanka and it was Christmas time. There was a massive surfing festival on all the hotels were booked up. So we had to drive six or seven hours down to the south of the island. They found a place to stay in the town of Weligama on the south coast of Sri Lanka at the edge of the vast Indian Ocean. They surfed and had Christmas dinner. Paul's oldest sister hadn't joined them for this part of the trip and his second oldest sister, Joy, headed to the airport that Christmas night to go back to the UK on her own. Everyone went to bed, completely unaware that the next day would change not only their lives, but the lives of millions of others forever it's eight in the morning and my brother's like paul paul wake up uh, there's some water coming in the room i'm like mate leave me alone so then he's like no paul i'm not joking because like we do pranks on each other like if i was up first or something i would hit him on the head and you know just kind of young teenage banter and he was like no we need to get up so then i got up and we're like crap what's happened here we then had to put the bags and stuff on the bed. And then we saw the waiters and stuff all running up and down. They were putting the chairs on the tables. And we were like, what's happened here? Is this normal? Is the tide just coming in? What is it? And it was quite calm. And then it felt weird. There was like no birds and stuff and that. And it was like, hang on, something isn't right here. It just had a weird feeling in the air, like something bad was coming to happen. It just went quiet. There was water coming in and loads of people panicking. And that was all you saw. And then there was a small wave and then that went out. And then another one came in and it was up to sort of knee height. Then it went to waist height. And then when you're in water, even when it's not moving at your waist, it's hard to move. I then walked across in the waist height thinking, crap, we need to get out just in case this comes in anymore. Then before I know it, it's kind of at chest height and uh, we're outside. The water then goes out and there's no water. And we're like, that was so weird and crazy. And what's happening is a big one's on its way. It was December 26th, 2004. Paul and his family were about to experience the worst tsunami in history, triggered by a massive undersea earthquake a few hours earlier near western Indonesia. 
But no one had heard about it, and no one was prepared. I was in my boxer shorts because I was just like woken up, and I was like, "What do we do? What do we do? Is this normal? What the hell?" When you see the tide going out, you're starting to think, "No, no, this is this is saying this is something else. This is this isn't right." And then we're like, "Okay, crap! You got 30 seconds." Paul and his brother had a room facing inland, about 30 meters from the beach. But his parents and younger brother and sister were in a bungalow right on the beach, facing the water. The water was coming back, and it was coming back bigger, and it was coming back quite quick. I was really lucky. My brother basically,、uh, I was holding on. He's like, "Hold on, hold on." We were just holding on, gripping on, and the water was going up and up and up. A wall of water nearly five meters high hit the coast and their bungalow. The force of it was so great it ripped a sink from the wall and smashed it into shards. It can move an oil tanker, the waves and stuff like the fishing boats. All of them just all got battered. It sometimes doesn't look like it because it just looks like water moving, but the force of it's insane. And we were just holding on, and it was taking off all the roof tiles and everything. And I was just trying to get height. I couldn't pull myself up, and my brother pulled my arm and pulled me up, and then we were kind of like holding on to the roof support beams that keep the tiles on, hanging on with our waists, getting pushed by the water. And then my brother managed to get higher up, and I couldn't reach, and he grabbed my arm. If he didn't grab my arm, I would have been gone. Swept away. Swept away. Yeah. The water starts to then recede and go back. And the whole place is just absolutely battered. It's literally debris everywhere, glass everywhere, coconuts dropped. Literally everything, saucepans, and we were then like, okay, we need to find our family, and we need to get out of here. Paul and his brother Rob assessed the situation from a rooftop. Then they spotted something. We found our little brother in a coconut tree. Paul's parents had been able to get Maddie and Rosie, his little brother and sister, out of their bungalow and Maddie into the tree. But then, where did his parents go? And where was Rosie? After searching through the debris of the resort, they found no trace of them, and they didn't know if another tsunami was going to hit. So they decided to head inland along some railway tracks towards the center of town. The trains were turned over. There was loads of dead people. People who were sort of nearly dead, being carried and stuff, and everyone's screaming, distressed. They're cut up and stuff. Everyone's scrambling, just helping each other, dragging people down by their legs along the rocky train tracks, just to get everyone to a dry and safer place. And we managed to find a mosque that was above ground and very well built. So we were like, okay, if we base ourselves on the roof of the mosque. And something happens—a bigger one comes, or whatever it is—we're fine. Paul and his brother decided to head back to the beach to look for Rosie. Someone approached them and asked if they had a little sister. She was with some surfers in a resort a few doors down, and she was all cut up and stuff on her arm and that. And she was only seven, and she was like, still in her pajamas and that. We got her back, and then some guy said he saw our dad, and he said that he was dead, and. I was like, no, 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 and I felt sick. 
I brushed that thought aside and said, nah, this is bollocks. Like, mum and dad are strong. They're still out there. They're, they're coming back. Paul and his brother didn't want to believe what they'd heard. But there was also no sign of their mother and father. It was chaos all around. Upended buses, boats wedged into trees, not to mention the thousands and thousands of injured and missing. It was clear that finding their parents in all of this would be nearly impossible. Paul was 15, Rob was 17, and, as the eldest, they knew they had to take responsibility for the little ones, Rosie and Maddie. The common sense they'd spent their childhood learning kicked in. The smartest thing to do would be to just get home. That meant heading to the airport in Colombo, a whole day's travel up the coast. But they didn't have any money, and there weren't any buses or trains running, the gas stations weren't functioning, and there was still no information about where else the tsunami had hit or how extensive the damage was in the rest of the country. So, the four Forcan children, still in the clothes they'd woken up in the previous day, managed to find a ride. Colombo hadn't been hit as badly by the tsunami, but was chaotic with rescue operations. The Forcans managed to get their wounds tended to and to call their oldest sister. They told her they were okay and trying to get home, but they had no passports, no clothes, and no parents. They were all minors. They also had no home to go to. It had been sold four years back, remember? But the British consulate got the Forcan kids on a flight back to the UK... They boarded the plane barefoot and in borrowed clothes with nothing but each other. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome on board of this flight. We were the biggest family, Western family, orphaned in the tsunami. So it was, it was big news. The tsunami brought chaos and destruction to hundreds of miles of the Sri Lankan coastline. But the personal tragedy that befell teenagers Robin Paul Falcon, Unbeknownst to them, the Forecans had become a huge media story back home. Once they arrived in the UK, they virtually had to go into hiding. And a lot of other things needed to be sorted out too. Paul's oldest sister, who was 22, agreed to take them into her two-bedroom house. They needed to go back to school. They needed to arrange the semblance of a normal life again. All while having no idea if their parents were still alive. They were stuck in a kind of limbo. And then I think it got to like March, so it was a few months of living, thinking that they were coming back. And then it was confirmed that they'd found their bodies. Even after their funeral, I didn't think they were gone. I thought they were they were like the most strongest people that I'd known. I didn't think that um, they would ever be leaving when I was a kid. The Forkan family finally had an answer. Their parents were gone. And the kids could begin to think about moving on with their lives. Paul spent a year and a half in school, but given the circumstances, it didn't go very well. I was buggered. I was like, what do I do now? And everyone was like, well, you need to either get a trade, so like do plumbing or electrical or whatever it was. But that wasn't for him either. I needed to get out of my sister's house because I just felt like I was trespassing, just Living in her garage, I needed to move on and give her her life back a bit, you know. So as soon as I got to 18, I was sat in the car park at work and I was looking on my phone where to book some flights. 
and that was it. I booked a round-the-world ticket. If there was one thing the four cans were good at, it was feeling at home in other countries. School of life, right? I love flying. It's, it's the best, you know. It's quite random, isn't it, when you just, you know, you leave London and you, you're here all the time. You, you get off the plane and you can either be in Sri Lanka or, you know, like wherever it is. And it's totally different culture, people, language, money, the whole lot, weather. It's the best feeling ever. And Paul was, for the first time in his life, completely on his own. It felt like I was living in a video game. It just feels so amazing and so good. Because when you're living in your sister's garage and there's no space in a three-bedroom house and you're all living on top of each other in bunk beds, I don't know, it just felt, felt free. I had no responsibility, no one to answer to, didn't have to be back for a certain time. You know, you'd go to a silent disco rave on the beach in India and you're just like, oh my God, that's the best night I've ever had. And then you're staying in tree houses, you're meeting all these random new people, hiring scooters, jet skis, being young and free, yeah, and wild. From 18 to 21 was some of the best years of my life. Paul spent three years traveling around the world on his own, America, Asia, New Zealand. But blood is thicker than water, as they say, and on his 21st birthday, his brother Rob showed up. I just turned up at the door and Paul had no idea how I knew where he lived, how to get there, and just wasn't expecting it. This is Rob Forkan. What was funny, it was literally like eight hours before or something, I was in India saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I can't be there for your birthday. Whilst literally then having my backpack and everything ready to go, I shut my laptop and just remember running straight to the airport and getting to the airport. Can we say he was surprised? Oh, understatement. Yeah, he was blown away, literally. Like, I thought he was going to pass out. He thought I was in India, which I was in India at the time. It was also a stopover on my way to Australia to go surprise him and tell him about the idea. So, after celebrating with Paul, Rob sat him down and told him what had been on his mind. A business plan of sorts. Sell a product and use a percentage of the proceeds to help kids in Sri Lanka who had been orphaned in the tsunami. Like they had. The more I thought about it, the more I thought this is got legs 100% it was symbolic you know overcoming adversity and showing that no matter what kind of happens you you know you can kind of push on and I was like yeah I mean I don't want to get to the 10 year anniversary and basically just look at my brother and go oh we've done nothing for our parents like legacy what they kind of instilled in us Paul and Rob started the same kind of social enterprise that his parents had run when they were children and thus, Gandhi's was born. We spell it differently, but our little brother used to always get called Gandhi because he had glasses on. And after a night out, you would maybe sometimes say my mouth tasted as dry as a Gandhi's flip-flop. And it's like a slang term. Because instead of putting on fashion shows like their parents had, they decided to sell flip-flops. Basically, we used to live in flip-flops as children. Me and my brother, we were like, okay, what's a universal product that everyone can afford? We were like, again, that's a flip-flop. Right, let's, let's do flip-flops. It's a universal product solving universal problems. Paul and Rob's foundation provided orphans of the tsunami with the basics. But before they knew it, they were doing more. We were orphans and we set it up to help orphans. But as we discovered, after a few months, we were then just 
doing stuff with communities and the villages and just helping all children because we just thought it was important that every child should have access to a good education, they should get nutrition and they should have a happy life at home and medicine. Their experience as kids helping with their parents' business and volunteering at orphanages came in more than handy. But they also had to use their skills in independence and self-reliance to get it off the ground. After years of failing at school and not doing so well at school, and our parents always saying, no, it's fine, don't worry, as long as you work hard, do this, you do that, don't give up. That's kind of where the drive and the grit and the determination came from. Paul's brother Rob agrees. You know, not many 17 and 15 year olds managed to hitchhike home in a natural disaster in a third world country. To do that and see everything that we saw and battle through all of that, then when we get everything else put in front of us, we can, you know, somehow just plough through it. We did some like stupid stuff. We were young and naive. And you're competing against massive lifestyle brands, surf brands, and they would spend thousands on a photo shoot. And then we would do our photo shoot and literally it would be on an old iPhone in the bathtub to get the white backdrop. And that's our photo shoot. Our website looked like it had been made by, I don't know, a nine-year-old that had never made a website before. It looked awful. But we kind of just put it together and off we went. I'd got some postcards printed off of our brand, our website on. I'd go hand them outside the tube station around Clapham Common. I'd then run home to see how many pairs we sold online, and it'd be none. And I'd be like, oh my God, I've been doing this for the last week or so. <laughs> I have sold one pair. We were doing stuff just to get the name out there and just trying to work out what works. Um, I don't go hand out postcards now <laughs> at the tube station. Gandhi's got its first flip-flop order from someone in Germany, and before they knew it, they had 60,000 followers on Facebook. The business grew quickly from there, Gandhi sells more than flip-flops now. They also make backpacks, coats, and shirts. When they can, their products are made in villages affected by the tsunami. 10% of Gandhi's profits go to Rob and Paul's charity, Orphans for Orphans. And then, just before the 10th anniversary of the tsunami, they met someone named Mama Tina. Mama Tina owned a piece of land in Sri Lanka and offered it up as a place where they could build their first kids' campus. It's like three floors now, it's got an IT room on it, it's got sports facilities on the side for the kids, so there's volleyball, cricket, and the kids go there for preschool. We get the local carpenter to come in, the plumber will come in. If the kids aren't academic, we get them lessons with uh, these like tradespeople, and the kids will get medication, nutrition, they'll get food. If there's like bad stuff going on at home, Mama Tina will be on it because it's in a rural village, and we let them all run it themselves. So when you and your brother were standing there, and it had been built, and you'd realized your dream, and you did it on the 10th anniversary of the tsunami, and also the 10th anniversary of your parents' death, and you stood back and you looked at what the two of you together had built, how'd you feel? It felt proud for my parents. There was something now left for them. But me and my brother, we know it's not enough. We need to do more. There's a lot of children out there. We know that we're not going to save the world. But if we can just leave the world in a better place and do as much as we can, then we're happy and 
We know that our vision is to have our projects in every continent and have projects in a few countries. And we know that this isn't a five-year project. This is our life that we feel like we need to give back to people that deserve it. Gandhi's has expanded their kids' campuses as well. They have another one in Malawi and two more are being built, one in Brazil and another in Nepal. Ultimately, we were just selling flip-flops, but that's what drives us. If we're ever having a bad day or whatever at work now, we know that the other side of the world or somewhere, people are benefiting from us. And even the factories that we use now on our clothes as well, we use like two brothers in Nepal. They hand make all of our jumpers. We know that the people who make our bags are a husband and wife. We're their biggest customer. We know that her children, all of them, we're supporting the family. That's how we like to make our stuff, is by using small factories that are family businesses. And that's what we're passionate about. The business is doing really well. They've opened three stores in London and have had lots of celebrity endorsements from, you know, Richard Branson, former Prime Minister David Cameron, and the royal family. And wherever they went and whoever they met, they wore their flip-flops, even to the Prime Minister's office and Buckingham Palace. And what would Paul's parents think of all this? I think they would be proud, but I think they would be annoyed if we weren't working with them. They'd definitely be good people to have around because they'd also be, not pushy, but, you know, they'd always have you dreaming and thinking big. That's what we try to do, you know, just keep travelling, which is what they loved us to do, keep doing the, the charity work that they instilled in us and just live a happy life and have fun, you know, and keep it simple. For Paul's brother Rob, it was also about moving forward about acknowledging the influence of what had happened to them, but not getting stuck in it. That is the moral of the story, is you need to find something to then refocus on, because otherwise you're forever living in the past. We didn't. We chose not to live in the past, we chose to look to the future. Do you think about them a lot still? I think about them every day. We make products and stuff and people wouldn't know, but we get like inspiration or stuff from them. We do collaborations. We did one with Liberty, and that was because it was our mum's favourite shop. And she'd make us clothes from their prints. we done one with the Rolling Stones, our dad's favourite band. And our most recent collaboration was with McLaren, the Formula One team. Our dad was massive into Formula One. So we're always thinking about doing bits for them. They're always going to be in the brand. And how is Paul doing after all this? I'm definitely tougher than what it probably would have been me and my brother we have no fear because kind of nothing worse can happen to us as our parents would always say if you get knocked off your bike just get back up stop whinging get on with it you know uh, and that's how we've got to live you know you can look back and dwell on the past but they wouldn't want us to do that either they would want us to be happy so you just have to take it in stride have fun Work hard, play hard, chase your dreams. And that's kind of what we're doing. You only live once. Paul Forkan. We'll put links to his brother Rob's book, the Gandhi's website, and their charity on our website, podcast.klm.com. You've been listening to The Journey, an original podcast brought to you by KLM Royal Dutch Airlines. 
For more background on this story and to hear more stories about the trip that changed everything, go to podcast.klm.com. And why not review us on Apple Podcasts? It helps other listeners find this podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Jonathan Gruber.